This month on Security Management Highlights. Two big things have happened that totally change everything. An Obama-era initiative had announced that the federal government would phase out the use of private prisons due to poor conditions, but the Trump administration recently reversed that ruling. Homeland Security editor Lily Choppa breaks it down for us. One concerning thing about this case was the level of responsibility and high standard that the jury placed on the contract security provider. Recent court cases demonstrate how security firms can be found liable when an incident occurs. Associate editor Megan Gates explains. The people who are the employees are at the top, and the servant leader is at the bottom. The concept of servant leadership takes the traditional manager-employee model and turns it upside down. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo gives us the scoop. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. On February 23, 2017, the Trump administration rescinded a ruling by former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates to end the federal government's reliance on private prisons. As Homeland Security Editor Lily Choppa explains, the topic of private prisons was already a controversial one. More than three-quarters of immigrants detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement are held in privately run detention centers, and a report by the Justice Department previously found that such facilities were riddled with safety and security incidents. Let's go to Lily now for more. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. For your March Homeland Security column, you wrote about a measure by the Department of Justice to discontinue the use of 13 privately run prisons, but some stuff has changed and the news cycle roars on as we publish our magazine. What's the latest update you have as far as this initiative? When I was originally writing this article for the magazine, I wrote about how DHS is using privately run facilities to hold immigrants and how that might be phased out. But a lot has changed over the past six weeks, and it appears that President Donald Trump intends to increase increase federal use of private prisons. For some context, last August, the Department of Justice released a report that found that private detention centers incur more safety and security incidents per capita than government-run centers do. Because of the findings, then-Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates announced that the DOJ would phase out its use of 13 privately owned prisons. The Department of Homeland Security then conducted its own review on its use of private facilities, which are typically used to hold immigrants while their legal status is determined. And that's what I wrote about for the March issue. Since then, two big things have happened that totally change everything. The crackdown on illegal immigrants and the reversal of Yates' decision to phase out private prisons. So a lot has changed in the Justice Department since especially Trump became president. Tell us about the reversal. Sure. So on February 23rd, Jeff Sessions, who's the new attorney general, reversed Yates' decision, saying that it, quote, changed longstanding policy and practice and impaired the Bureau's ability to meet the future needs of the federal correctional system. So now, two of the largest private prison companies are getting ready to reopen their doors and take in thousands of prisoners. Critics of the private prison industry are pretty alarmed because the findings of that DOJ report last year still stand and nothing is really being done to address those problems. 
In fact, three people died in detention centers between October and December of last year. So what about the Department of Homeland Security's use of private facilities? Well, that DHS review I mentioned earlier found similar concerning results about private detention facilities. And remember that these facilities are used for the civil detention of immigrants during their immigration hearings. But the review ultimately concluded that federally run facilities are more cost-effective. However, when the issue was put to vote by the Homeland Security Advisory Council, that decision was rejected, and the council recommended that DHS close private facilities. It was a pretty unusual series of events, but a final decision was never made before the change in administration. Now it certainly sounds like, if anything, DHS's use of private facilities will be ramping up. So when you were working on this article a few months ago, conditions were already overrun in these private facilities holding immigrants. And now we hear about raids happening all over the country of immigrants who obviously they need to be held while awaiting their hearings or awaiting deportation. How is that affecting the already overcrowded detention center problem? Uh, The situation is pretty dire. Like you said, when I wrote the article, Customs was holding more than 40,000 people, even though there's only federal funding for 32,000 beds. That's where private systems have stepped in. They run nine of the ten largest detention centers. And it looks like that will keep growing. Following news of Sessions' reversal on the DOJ private prison phase-out, two of the largest private prison corporations announced they have already seen a huge increase in business from immigration and customs enforcement, as crackdowns on immigration have increased under Trump. These companies have already offered thousands more beds for immigrants. Like the DOJ situation, it's unclear if ICE is going to address oversight issues brought up by the DHS report. So when you wrote this column, civil rights organizations were already not happy about the prospect of, you know, continuing privately run immigration detention centers. I'm sure now they're even uh, more vocal. But what issues exactly did they say they have with this scenario? Well, to civil rights organizations, the increase in private detention facilities means not only the monetization of detainees, but centers that do not have to abide by federal quality control. The DOJ report on private facilities notes that contract compliance checklists do not address federal health and correctional services requirements. There aren't any checks on whether inmates receive initial examinations, immunizations, health tests. And there's no real oversight about staffing levels of correctional officers or their duties. Nonprofits also stress that those kept in immigrant detention centers are not criminals. They are often legal permanent residents, families with young children, or asylum seekers in the midst of civil immigration proceedings. And like you said, Holly, it'll be really interesting to see what they say after this latest news of the reversal. Yes, that decision reversal is perhaps not surprising. It does seem in line with some of the administration's new policies, and I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on the situation. Thanks, Lily. Absolutely. Thank you. When the loss of life or property occurs on a security firm's watch, those organizations may be found liable if the cases go to court. Associate Editor Megan Gates is here to explain how security practitioners can minimize the risk of this occurring. Hello, Megan, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. So we usually talk about cybersecurity, but this month you had a great piece on liability and some lessons that security practitioners can learn from past cases. Let's start out by talking about the case of a workplace shooting in Northeast Philadelphia. What happened exactly? 
So yeah, there was this case where this woman, Yvonne Hiller, she was an employee at the Kraft Foods plant in Philadelphia for 15 years. And over the years, she'd had a few disputes with her colleagues. And one day she got into a quarrel with three of her co-workers, Tanya Renee Wilson, LaTanya Brown, and Brian Dalton. And later that evening, there was a union stewards and supervisors meeting and they discussed what had happened and it ended up with Yvonne Hiller getting suspended. In the craft plant, they had hired a contract security firm, U.S. Security Associates, to secure the facility. So after Hiller was suspended, U.S. Security Associates was notified and they were asked to escort her to her vehicle and make sure that she left the premises. However, they failed to do that. The security officer on duty did not walk Hiller to her car, so that allowed her to go back to her vehicle, where she had a gun stored there, drive up to the security gate where the security guard was, and she ended up, because he didn't open the gate for her, driving through it. The security guard hid inside of a small building next to the security gate. So Hiller went inside the plant, um, she was, and she was armed with her gun, and security failed to alert anyone. One of the security officers even ran away to seek cover. Eventually, they called 911, and police responded to the scene, but it was too late. Hiller had gone in, and she had shot Wilson, Brown, and Dalton, her co-workers that she'd quarreled with earlier. And sadly, Wilson and Brown died. Dalton did survive. And you write that the estates of the two deceased victims, Wilson and Brown, then filed a civil suit against U.S. Security, that company you mentioned that had been contracted to provide security at Kraft, and also against Hiller in 2015. They alleged the security company was guilty of negligence for failing to protect the people at the plant during the shooting. And like you said, one hid, one ran off. So they definitely failed to warn employees that Hiller was in the plant and had a gun. What lessons does this case teach security professionals? Yeah, so as you said, you know, the case went to court and a jury deliberated and it found um, U.S. Security Associates negligent and it ordered them and Hiller to pay $46.5 million in damages. That is a very, very big number. And so when I was researching this piece, I actually put out on my Twitter account that, you know, I was looking for a lawyer who I could talk to about it. I ended up being contacted by Eddie Sorrells. He's Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel for DSI Security Services, security provider in Dothan, Alabama. And so we connected and were able to talk about the case. And he says that from the plaintiff's perspective, it was a logical choice for them to go after U.S. security associates because they were the ones with the most money. And he said one concerning thing about this case was the level of responsibility and high standard that the jury placed on the contract security provider to not only deter acts from happening, but to then take upon themselves actions to prevent that incident from escalating. You know, the jury, as Sorrell said, really communicated that U.S. Security Associates had failed in their responsibility to make sure that this bad person got off the premises and that they didn't communicate the emergency or that Hiller was in the facility with a firearm. And if they had done that, they might have been able to save people's lives. So Sorrell said it was a real wake-up call for contract security companies that some juries are going to set a really high bar when it comes to protecting clients. And he also said it was, you know, important for companies to really put themselves in the shoes of someone who might be judging them after an incident happens. And one of those things that they might be judging the company on is, you know, their training. So how the contract security provider trains their staff and then also for the company that hires them, whether it's communicated, you know, their plans, procedures and policies for if there's an incident in their facility, what they expect the contract security provider to do. And also making sure that the contractor has the background, resources and knowledge to advise you on security best practices. 
And then one other critical point that this case made was that it is really important for HR and security to partner together when someone is going to be terminated or suspended, um, especially if that person might be a volatile personality, such as Hiller in this case. You know, she had a track record of having disputes with colleagues before. So HR bringing security in and saying, you know, this person might be a concern and we want you to be involved in the termination or suspension process can be really, really important. You also write about the homicide of a student at Yale University a few years ago that illustrates how insider threat scenarios can also affect liability. What happened in this case and what was the lawsuit over? Yeah, so this was a really awful and and horrific case. Um, So just be forewarned. On September 8th, 2013, Yale University doctoral student Annie Lee, she went to the research lab at Yale University where she conducted experiments into enzymes. And later that day while she was at the lab, the fire alarm went off and everyone was evacuated. But Lee, she didn't leave the facility and Yale didn't look for her. She didn't go home that night and eventually her roommate reported that she was missing, but authorities didn't begin to look for her until the next morning. They found her body five days later, stuffed into a wall in the basement of the lab facility. A later investigation found that she'd been assaulted and strangled, and authorities immediately suspected that it was by her fellow lab tech, Raymond J. Clark III. He eventually pleaded guilty to the crime and is serving a 44-year prison sentence. So after the criminal case, Lee's family filed suit against Yale, alleging that it was negligent and failed to use reasonable care by hiring Clark for a position that gave him unsupervised access to students and staff, retaining him in that position for failing to adequately supervise and monitor his activities, and for allowing him to work alone in remote areas of the building with Lee and others, among many other charges. Yale initially denied the allegations, but ended up settling just last year for $3 million. So what lessons can be learned from the Yale case for security professionals as far as negligence and an organization's responsibility to protect their employees, their stakeholders? Uh, The fire alarm portion is especially interesting because in an evacuation, you know, should companies make sure everyone's accounted for? Yeah, so once again, I got in touch with someone via Twitter. Apparently my lesson for... (laughs) for this article is that lawyers and their PR reps are very active on social media. So I ended up getting in touch with Paul Slager. He was a lawyer for Lee's family and a partner at Silver Golub and Title LLP. And he said that this this case really marked a broader shift that's happening in security and security liability. In the past, there was a big focus on keeping intruders out. As long as you keep intruders out of your facility, you know, and enact policies and controls like video surveillance and access control systems to, you know, track people's movements and monitor them outside the facility and hopefully keep them out, you will create a safe facility. And slowly we've seen this shift now where there's a recognition that just because you keep people out of your facility doesn't mean your environment is safe, that insiders can be threats as well. And that's what this case involving Lee and Clark was, was they were people who worked together, they knew each other well, and he attacked her and killed her. So companies and organizations really need to design security policies that also address insider threats and for people that have legitimate access to the facility. So one way that some companies are doing this that Slager mentioned to me was through giving people personal security devices. An example is University of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, They're giving students national protective systems 
personal alarm locators called PALS. And when you press them, it pinpoints your location and then it immediately sends it to campus security. So that way that they know, okay, something's happening and this is where this person was when that incident was happening. So hopefully they can respond quickly, you know, to what's happening and prevent an incident from happening in the first place or from escalating. Well, it's nice to hear that lawyers are active on Twitter. I'll have to take that as a personal note to self for my future stories. And yes, it sounds like we've learned a lot of lessons just from these two cases alone. So thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Holly. In order to empower and inspire employees to great performance, managers may learn more from the examples of humble servants than of great kings and queens. Senior editor Mark Tarallo tells us more about how bosses can transform themselves into servant leaders. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Let's start by having a description of the archetypal servant leader. Yeah, the archetypal servant leader really flips the traditional power leadership model on its head. If you think of traditional power leadership, leader on top, and the people who work for them on the bottom, servant leader flips this. So the people who are the employees are at the top. And the servant leader is at the bottom. And the servant leader's job is then to look for ways to empower and uplift and help the people that actually work for him or her. So it's really kind of a radical reversing of the traditional power leadership model. So where did the concept of servant leadership begin, and how did it gain steam in the modern managerial world? Yeah, scholars uh, point to a few things in terms of origin stories. One is the really rich period of Chinese philosophy in the 5th century BC. There are several philosophers they cite, but one Chinese philosopher, and this is way back in 5th century BC, was famous for making the argument that when the best leaders finish their work, their people would say, say we did it ourselves. So right then you have the real focus on the people, not the leader. There's another strain if you move forward a century or two in the West with Greek thinkers and writers, a writer like Sophocles, who forcefully rejected the idea that the city's ruler was its master. This is in one of the Sophoclean dialogues where someone asserts that the city and its people must obey its ruler. And Sophocles was putting forward the kind of radical idea of, no, the city's ruler is not its master. It has many masters, i.e. its people. So you had a similar idea there as you did in the Eastern world with the Chinese. And then there's, of course, religious influences. In Christianity, some have argued that in biblical narratives, Jesus Christ is one of the first prominent servant leaders. There's also people, and I'm actually less familiar with other traditions, but in the Muslim world, there are leaders who historians point to as prominent servant leaders. And when did it gain steam in the contemporary world? In the contemporary world, one of the key development points 
was an essay written in 1971, or I should say an essay published in 1971 by Robert Greenleaf. The essay was called The Servant as Leader. Now, Greenleaf passed away in 1990, but he's considered one of the primary contemporary advocates for servant leadership. And in fact, there is now a Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership that's based in Atlanta. The head of that now, Susan Felitico, she was at IBM for 31 years, and now she leads that. There's also another institute of servant leadership in California. So it's a fairly popular school of thought among leaders and in leadership circles. So how can a manager apply servant leadership best practices with employees? What does it look like in the real workplace, anywhere from hiring to the talent development process? Yeah, as you say, it really starts with the hiring process. And experts say right when a new person is hired, a servant leader, whoever that person's boss is, can immediately start soliciting the new hire's observations, impressions, opinions. So right away from day one, the message is from the servant leader to the new hire, hey, new hire, your thoughts are important. Your opinions are important. Your observations are important. In addition, as the new hire starts to come on board, the servant leader really keeps a continual focus on talent development. So from an early stage, the idea is, hey, this person could be a future leader. And so the servant leader is always looking to develop that person really from the get-go as a potential future leader. Again, here, like soliciting the opinions of the new hire, the servant leader puts the focus on the employee. Another best practice for servant leaders is the focus on really fully leveraging the employee's strengths. What one expert calls this, make sure that staffers are working in their gifts. What happens is often an employee's highest performance is on task they're most passionate about. They're good at something, they know they're good at something, they really enjoy using those skills. And so that's a gift that can really be fully utilized. But some managers never find that out. They never bother to ask, you know, what do you like doing best? What do you think you're best at? And they don't leverage those gifts, which uh, is really a wasted resource if they're not used. And you interviewed one source, Daryl Spivey, a senior faculty member at the Center for Creative Leadership, who said asking the right questions is the secret sauce of great coaching and also crucial for a servant leader. So what did he mean by that? What what does the secret sauce kind of result in? Yeah, as Mr. Spivey says, asking questions is the secret sauce of great coaching and great leadership. It's really a way to best utilize the employee employees, not only opinions and ideas, but perspectives. So a leader can ask almost anything. If the employee is struggling, leaders can ask or managers can ask questions about what, in your opinion, is impeding his or her progress. So again, it's not like the leader just says, hey, you're messing up here. You're not fulfilling expectations. You need to shape up. But it's asking it in question form. Why do you think your progress may be impeded? here a bit. You can ask questions about any aspect of operations. When we meet, what do you think is the best use of our time during meetings? And even broader questions about the company's business environment. Uh, what do you think how we're doing from like a 20,000 feet above perspective? How do you think the company's doing? So not only these could be a source of great ideas, but those will often 
hold the keys to learning more about the employee so the servant leader can help them really reach their potential. It's part of the learning process of uh, getting to know the employee. Now, you close your article by talking about three sort of character traits or expressions of character, which are encouragement, humility, and trust. So how do these ingredients also play into the servant leadership recipe? Yeah, Skip Pritchard. He's a management expert and author of a book, Servant Leadership, Leading with Others in Mind. He had a great thought experiment to illustrate this. He said, imagine a morning where before you leave the house, your partner leaves you a note saying, you're the best. I'm the luckiest person alive. Then on your commute, you run into someone who says, wow, I haven't seen you in a long time. It's just really great seeing you. And then you get to work. And the first thing that happens is there's an email in your inbox from a coworker who says amazing work on that project yesterday. You really nailed it. So Pritchard says, okay, those three things happen to you. Now imagine your mood for the rest of the day. And he goes, just encouragement is such a powerful, powerful tool. And servant leaders know the good ones know how to use it and realize its value. It can make all the difference. So encouragement is is really, really key. The other ones you mentioned, humility and trust, also very important. Humility comes often natural to a servant leader because they're always putting other people first. So the focus is not on them. And that leads to an almost organic demonstration of humility. You know, people think, wow, this person is not self-centered, not focused focused on themselves, not stuck on themselves at all. When it comes to trust, that's also key too. And it kind of works both ways in that, as management experts say, servant leaders still need to be very competent and it really helps to have a record of success, a good work record in their previous jobs, things like that. That can make for initial trust in that employees think, okay, this person has been successful before in the working world, so I'm going to at least trust him to some extent. Then when the servant leader is continually putting the employee first, that trust builds and builds. The employee thinks, wow, this person really cares about my development. I really trust them. So the trust is developing deeper and deeper. And it works both ways where the servant leader, just by the fact of putting the employee first, that's a kind of implicit or even in some ways explicit demonstration of, I trust you. I think you've got a tremendous amount of potential. So I'm putting you first. I'm working on your development. I think you're going to do a great job. So servant leadership sounds like a great recipe. Thanks for stopping by, Mark. Thanks, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to stay tuned throughout the month for bonus material and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Until next time, bye-bye.